Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Colleen Berube, the Chief Information Officer and Senior Vice President of Operations of Zendesk to the broadcast. Zendesk is a customer experience company founded in 2007 that enables any business around the world to take their customer service online. As of December of last year, the company surpassed a billion dollars in annual revenue for the first time. Colleen joined Zendesk just under three years ago as the Chief Information Officer, and she added her operations responsibilities a bit more than a year ago. She's a previous Chief Technology Officer of Fisher Investments and a former leader of other tech stalwarts, including Adobe and Cisco. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. At Zoho, we believe help desk is as much an employee experience as it is the customer experience. When your employees can access all the information on a single pane of glass and communicate with customers in not only knowledgeable way, but in a one-to-one relationship way, it results in magic. We have empowered our help desk to bring issues straight into our product ideas and product plan. This has enhanced the role of help desk from supporting customers to innovating for growth. Learn more about our help desk at zoho.com slash desk. And now on to the interview. Colleen, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Hi, Peter. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Well, Colleen, as I mentioned, you have a you have an unusual uh, dual set of responsibilities. Although there's a growing, though still exclusive, club of people who are taking on these tech and ops sets of responsibilities together. Yeah. But I'd love to hear, in your own words, kind of the the two sides of what you manage and uh, and your purview as a result of that, if you would. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I joined in 2019 as the CIO, and my role there really uh, encompasses running all the technology that we run our business with. Uh, And in addition to that, enterprise data and analytics. So really looking after the data for the company. And then last year, uh, my role expanded to take on this team that we call enterprise operations. And that really includes it, it on the surface, it might seem like a mishmash of things, but it's actually uh, we lead the process to help guide setting the OKRs for the company, making sure we know we attach to the overall objectives we have as a company, how we're going to get there, developing the company roadmap to support that, and then a number of things that really help us execute against that. The program managers that lead those initiatives, the business process experts, the change management folks to make sure it's all successful. And then we also run the review processes for the company to kind of capture during the year, are we performing the way we expected? Are we achieving the results we hope to and feeding that back into the overall cycle? And what's interesting about this for me is, you know, as a technology leader, you often have your hands on the technology and sometimes you have your hands on the data. Sometimes you have a component or all of the data and analytics, but to have the possibility to affect the technology, the data and the process to me is super exciting and really looking in bringing these together to unleash new possibilities. 
Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, insight that you you mentioned. I know in our past conversations, you've referred to it as three legs of the stool, tech, data, yeah. and process. And and as a result of controlling those, you have an enormous amount of influence, you, you and your organization, uh, yeah. as a result of, of leading those different aspects. Talk a bit about the change that you have begun to influence as a result of, of having those three legs of the stool uh, under your purview. Yeah, well, as you mentioned earlier, we are a company that has just crossed a billion dollars. And, um, you know, as the old saying goes, what got us to here won't get us to there. So we've really shifted our sights as a company on now growing to become a multi-billion dollar company. We've declared that by 2025, we want to be $3 billion. And so it really causes us to rethink what is it going to take for us to scale at that level? So as you can imagine, we're very focused on how do we take out of the system, and I use that as the, the big S word, right? How do we take out some of the more bespoke work that we do, make it more of a machine in places where it makes sense to do that so that we can scale at the level that we need to? And you find these in places that you know are not atypical for other companies growing fast, looking at our order to cash processes or our hiring processes, all of those things that you just did whatever you had to do to get it done in earlier days. Now we have to be able to do it in a whole different way. And you've worked for larger organizations. So in many ways, an advantage that Zendesk has is you've been at, you, you've already operated at the scale that this organization is going to. You know what good looks like at the, the at $10 billion, not just at $1 billion. And so I, you're I like to tell people I know what it looks like when people made that transition well and when they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great point. And I'd love to, I'd love to get some at least a top line diagnosis as to what the differentiating factors are. How, how do you, for example, make sure that as you're adding processes, you're, it doesn't feel like you're simply adding bureaucracy as some people in a, you know, it's still a relatively young organization that has been fast moving and entrepreneurial. You know, sometimes yeah. there's that conflict of, yes. look, you know, as we reach this size and scale, we need to introduce new practices. And some yeah. naysayers may say, whoa, this just starts to feel a little bit like red tape. Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you get that balance right? I think it's always a delicate balance. And, and part of the challenge is, of course, on the one hand, you want to bring in skills and talent from companies that know what scale looks like. And on the flip side of that, as you mentioned, the risk is you can introduce too much process. You can make it too bureaucratic. So we really focus on how do we keep it as light touch as possible. And the phrase that I like to use is, how do we add just enough process to make it go faster, right? So um, we really just try to live true to that and um, not overburden things with complexity, but keep things simple even internally. And of course, this is a mantra for Zendesk in general. This is how we think about the product that we deliver to the market, but also we think of how we think about running our business internally. Um, I'd say in many ways, it's a cultural thing at Zendesk. Um, and so, you know, examples are, I'll share one, which is we're just coming to the point where we start thinking more purposefully about new initiatives that we kick off in the company. Um, and we've created this really lightweight value model where people simply, we get them simply to write down, what is it we're going to do? What will it take to get it done? And what will we get for it? We don't do ROI or big, deep spreadsheets because you've seen that before we all have, 
but we're really just trying to like slowly turn the dial on getting people more attentive to if we're going to make an investment of resources and dollars, there needs to be a benefit that we can see. And how will we know if we see it? And that's that's proving pretty effective, pretty effective, because when you start asking those questions, of course, the benefit is really in asking the questions, because then you you have people stop and look at have they really thought through what's involved and how will we know what we get? Yeah. Yeah. You know, cust customer experience has become such a uh, powerful lever that's uh, still a, a, a um, like your dual set of responsibilities is still the domain of an elite set of of uh, chief information officers, digital technology yeah. officers of, of influencing. And, uh, you know, yours is a company that focuses on this area uh, by yes. enabling uh, businesses around the world to take their customer service online thinking about things in really different different ways. I'd yeah. be curious about, especially in an organization that focuses on this, the role that you and your team plays in enhancing customer experience. Yeah, thanks. Because uh, this is one of my favorite topics. But, you know, first of all, we're in a world now where the key, uh, key lever for companies in terms of staying relevant or becoming relevant is their focus on customer experience. The world has changed to the point where every single one of us, almost every day, has a new experience that changes our expectations and our paradigm around how companies should treat us and what our engagement with them should feel like. Um, and because of that, you know, it, 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 and to do that well, I guess is a better way to say it, to do that well, companies really need to focus on it across the entire enterprise. It's not enough for just marketing to think about it or customer service to think about it. And so the, the success criteria really is like, how do you put the customer at the center of your business? And of course, as a customer experience company, this is really important for us. And I think that the vantage point that the CIO has is unique among the leaders in the C-suite. They work with every part of the organization and often their role is to connect them together and to create new possibilities together. And this is exactly what a customer-centric organization requires. Um, so, you know, we look at opportunities to um, drive more conversations that look at things from a customer perspective, when we hear of different things going on in the organization that could be better connected from a customer lens, bringing that to the table. Um, and, and, and even in you know, the operational side of my job, how do we drive looking at our business more from that outside in perspective? I think it's a tremendous opportunity for CIOs to have an impact. The other element of course is, um, CIOs often have their hands on the data. You know, one of the stories I love to tell in my past is of a marketing leader that was telling everybody that they were going to build a 360 degree view of the customer. And I had to point out to them that you can't because you only have 120 degrees of the data. And CIOs really often have access to that 360 degree, even if it's not, you know, even if they don't quite have the solution yet, they have the data and they have the possibility of putting it together. Very interesting. Uh, I wondered also, um, there's a lot that has been thought about, especially during the past year and a half or so that we've been in quarantine through, through the COVID crisis in thinking about 
customer experience and employee experience. Um, yeah. not, not that those weren't thought about previously, but of course yeah. there's a new poignancy in the new ways in which we are working now. And frankly, the new trials and tribulations that that individuals and their families face just as they also contemplate that balance between work and, and life. Um, talk a bit about where you see the intersection between customer and employee experience. You know, it's interesting when you go look at the research that's been done in this space, it's, there's, there's almost a virtuous cycle between employee experience and customer experience. They're highly related. And on the one hand, if you look at companies that have, you know, happy and engaged employees, they experience over 80% higher customer satisfaction. And if you go look at companies that have the highest customer satisfaction, they have 80% higher employee satisfaction. So we could debate which one leads to the other, but the truth of the matter is, is that it just points to a company that's focused on experience. And I believe that if your aspiration is to deliver an amazing customer experience, you can't do that alone. You want every employee in your company to viscerally experience what that feels like every day and give them the tools and the processes that they need to help deliver that amazing customer experience. If you have passion about them, they will have passion about the customer. That, that certainly is a virtuous cycle that you're describing there. Very interesting indeed. Um, I wonder, as, as you reflect on, again, this most unusual period that we've been living through and yeah. especially kind of uh, diagnosing new ways of working virtually, it, uh, it would seem uh, a portion of which are going to continue even after a point where we can safely return to offices. Um, yes. How do you think about the topic of agility uh, and continuing to keep that on, on the uh you know, on the radar and, and part of the, the ethos and culture of an organization. You know, there, there are those who say that it is best managed uh, in close proximity, that even frankly, the whole topic of agile development is something that is, you know, originally uh, almost required hand to hand in person collaboration. Now yeah. there have been a tremendous number of learnings as a result of, of our, by necessity, many of us anyway, uh, operating virtually. Talk a bit about some of the things that you've learned over the course of this period that you think will be sustaining even beyond uh, into the next period, the so-called future of work. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when COVID started, you know, like a lot of other companies, um, we, we pivoted to remote work and many of the early uh, decisions we made and the actions we took were a bit reactive and tactical. You know, we made sure people had the equipment that they needed at home and that they could get access to what they needed. And we spent a lot of time in the early days, you know, uh, um, polling our employees to find out how they were doing and what they needed. And we took a lot of actions beyond technology itself. You know, we put new programs, support programs in place for employees and gave them access to services that they might need. So, all of that, you know, was what it was at the time. But over, as you point out, over the past year plus, we've learned quite a lot. And um, if I think now about the way we're talking about how we make employees successful in this environment, um, we've changed our thinking, pivoted our thinking a little bit to um, now look at, start with what is it the employee wants to get done? So whereas a year ago, we might've been talking, do they have a whiteboarding tool, <laughs> right? Now we're talking about, oh, no, it's not about the whiteboarding tool. It's about how do you conduct a collaborative 
design session in a remote environment. And we're focused on how we bring to the table everything you need to get that done. Here's the tools you'll need. You're going to need this. We suggest this collaboration tool, this whiteboarding tool. Here's some best practices for conducting this kind of session and this kind of meeting. And this component of introducing more common practices is really something we're focused on now. Really simple things that you don't need to necessarily do when you're all physically together. Did we have a good agenda for the meeting? Do people know why they're coming into the meeting? Are we more scrutinous about who needs to be there and doesn't need to be there? And if they're not there, do we do a good job of either sending them the recording afterwards or sending the minutes and actions afterwards? So this, again, kind of this more holistic view across the technology, the process, and the practices is really something we're focused on that I think has changed over that time. And I think from a leadership perspective, it requires you to be more purposeful. It requires you to think more carefully about what you're about to do, what people need to know. And of course, at the end of the day, this is all goodness because this is improving our craft as leaders uh, and, and having to do it in a, in a better fashion. I think as you bring these norms into the organization, back to your original question about agility, I mean, at the end of the day, of course, we could talk about agile development, which is one thing, but holistically, the concept of agility is making sure you have the resilience and you have the, the room to pivot when you need to. Something changes, how quickly do you identify that it's changed and how quickly can everybody tack to that new place? And um, I think this approach of kind of creating these, these just a bit of lightweight common practices and having that mindset of, of being willing to tack when we see that something's changed is in my mind what really forms agility. That's great, thank you for that overview. I yeah. wanted to also ask you, Colleen, um, you are a part of a growing club, a sorority, if you will, of, of women uh, leaders in technology. Yes. And it certainly has been good to see a growing number of, of chief information officers and other personas at the chief level um, who are women. And I wonder if you could reflect for a moment on sort of where, where things are currently and, um, you know, pathways to continued progress uh, in, this, in this vein. What are some reflections that you have on the topic? You know, I'll share with you just anecdotally. I, I started doing this about 10 years ago, uh, just almost as an accident. I would go into these, I would go to sessions where it was for CIOs or be in meetings with executives. And I just started counting how many people are in the room and how many women are here. And I didn't count the women that were running around organizing the session, just the, the executive women. <laughs> And I want to tell you for 10 years, anecdotally, it's been pretty consistent. It's between 10 and 15% of the room. So I haven't seen it increase dramatically, but I do see what you see is that we're starting to see more women rise up in the field. I think that it's it, obviously that's great to see and important to see. And I think um, the, the talent that we can bring to the table uh, and, and the extra dimension of how women lead uh, can make an important difference. Um, I think it's important for all of us to, to coach and mentor and encourage women to participate in the field, um, obviously to make room for them as they move through the normal 
things that happen in life, you know, having children and so forth. And we've just, we've just got to change our thinking a little bit so that we can encourage uh, this growth. Yeah, important, important thoughts there. I appreciate you sharing those, Colleen. I wanted yeah. to conclude with sort of um, some thoughts about trends as you look to the future. What are some trends that particularly excite you? What are some of the things that are making their way onto your roadmap? Yeah, um, you know, I really, it comes back to me, to the customer experience space. Um, I love keeping an eye on new things that are happening. And of course, through COVID, this has been a dramatic accelerator for in digital for a lot of companies. And what I think is interesting about it um, is it's really like forced companies to get to the understanding of what's possible. If you think about, for example, one example I like to use, uh, which at this point actually is almost a year old, but it, I, I love this example is um, getting reordering my contact lenses and learning that I could do my eye exam on my mobile phone completely shattered my paradigm. And when I was going through this online, I thought to myself, there's no way. And I went and did some research and learned that the efficacy of the exam on my mobile phone pretty much matched what I would have in the office. Now, there's other things they do when you go to the eye doctor that obviously you can't do on your mobile phone, but getting your prescription for your correction on your lenses and reordering your contacts or your glasses is there's no reason you need to go into an office for that. And certainly we've seen over the course of COVID that our paradigm around mobile or telemedicine, when do you really need to have the physicality uh, has changed. We used to think of it, we were skeptical of it. It was an exception. Now it seems completely normal. And our expectations change so fast in this new world. So for me, I keep an eye on this. I love watching what changes. I, you know, you go into a restaurant now and they don't hand you a menu. They give you a QR code so that you can look at it on your mobile phone. It's everything to create that contactless environment. Now, I don't think we all want to live in a contactless world, right? But it's sort of forced us to interrogate where's the bottom of the barrel on this? What are the things that truly require that physical interaction? And I think it gives companies the possibility of now thinking more carefully about when do I want to create interaction? And what is the purpose of that interaction? Whereas before, if you went back two years ago, we were all jumping on planes and getting together for conferences and going to meetings just because that's what you did. And I predict that will be much more purpose, purposeful about those human interactions that we have been in the past. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Well, Colleen Berube, thank you so much for taking time with me today and sharing a bit about your perspectives, your learnings from the, the past year. It's been a really great conversation. Thanks, Peter. I enjoyed it.